there's this guy in in uh, Black Squirrel Radio who has you know owed me a podcast script for like a month now, and so I've started publicly shaming him at the web staff meetings. <laughs> Uh, last week I put one up and I said this was going to be like a good old fashioned struggle session because we're all Maoists and I put a, in a picture of a struggle session and I labeled it, the guy in the middle as Connor and all the other people pointing as y'all and there's a picture of Mao in the background and I put me on that one and then this week I still didn't have it so in the in the notes you know on the powerpoint I was like has, does Connor have that podcast for me yet? Nope. Am I still a messy bitch who airs all my drama? <laughs> yep. And it was it was three billboards, but it said a full month and still no cereal because it's going to be a play on on the show cereal, mm-hmm. but it's spelled like the food and Count Chocula has been murdered. <laughs> How come, Connor? Yeah, that might be forever. Like suspended we might not actually do that one because connor he texted me and he was like so it turns out that plugging the names of serial mascots into a story about a 14 year old getting murdered is not inherently funny (laughs) as much as i thought it would be so we're in the process of rethinking that one Spall Talk, the only podcast where two siblings talk about the life and career of Kenneth Spall. I'm Neil Jacoby, here with my brother Eric Jacoby, and we're going to be talking about 2015's The Enfield Haunting, a three-part miniseries for Sky Living, directed by Christopher Nyholm, who you may know as the director of the original Danish version of The Killing. And we've got a guest in the studio with us here tonight, and who might that be? I am Andrew Isla. Ah, where might our guests know you Where might our listeners know you from, Andrew? Uh, if anyone knows me from the internet, it's probably from talking about movies. Um, I talk on Twitter about movies a lot. Uh, my uh, Last year, last summer when Twin Peaks was on, I had a podcast uh, called Don't Zap the Geek with Jojo Seams and Krista Lee, in which we discussed each episode of New Twin Peaks as it happened. Uh, and my I've written for a Top Film Society, and my current day job is writing for Looper, which is... Wow. You know, it's... You get to work with Ryan Johnson? <laughs> what? Yeah, I've, I've, heard, like I've, heard, person? I've heard like six variations on that since I got the job <laughs> and certified about what I do. Uh, Looper is, I mean, it's it's clickbait and we all know it, but also the editors are extremely great about allowing us to find ways to make it interesting while still staying within the realm of profitable clickbait. Like uh, last week I took an assignment to write about the new uh, Han Solo trailer and I had like, you know, eight hours to do it and i managed to work in references to things like uh the denny's hoobastank sanctioned huberito from 2008 <laughs> uh 
Uh, and I managed to do that organically within the context of Han Solo. Is that a real thing? Oh, it is. Uh, In 2008, in 2008, Denny's had a rock star themed menu. Uh, and one of the op, one of the, one of the options on that menu was the Hoobastank sanctioned Hooberito. And for some reason, I haven't been to Denny's probably since then, but at the time I was working at Blockbuster and some of us, it was a tiny town and, you know, we would go there after our midnight closing shifts because nothing else was open. And the word Huberito has haunted me for a decade and I finally made it profitable. perfect food stuff. So if you want to see how I managed to tie the Huberito into Han Solo, you can go to Looper and read my piece about the trailer. Um, But yeah, the editors are... The editors are great about letting us get away with that kind of nonsense, so I I really have no complaints about the gig. Um, so that's that's where I'm writing these days. Um, I right. also make I also make a lot of yeah I, I make you know some some short films of my own, and I've got a new project uh, launching on Arbor Day, which is the 27th, called Obsidian National Forest. So if I may plug that brief, briefly, uh, please go watch that. All right. Eric, you were about to jump in with something, oh, and I thought that the funniest like tie-in burrito was the dill burrito (laughs) (laughs) but i was wrong i found a a youtube video by the poster healthy junk food um and they somebody requested him to make a um a recipe clone of the hoobastank hoobarito so i want to watch this and i think i might make my own hoobarito if possible uh, I'm also very excited for the upcoming Hamilton Aaron Burrito. Fuck off. <laughs> no, the fucking the Aaron Burr official snack is a peanut butter sandwich with no glass of milk. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I'll be here all week. Oh, I, I think that, that is at least the second time we've brought up the Michael Bay Got Milk commercial on this show. Michael Bay directed that? Bay? Yeah. I'm, I'm sure like, I've that. asked that very question on this podcast too, but I didn't know that. I remember I'm... that commercial very clearly. <laughs> no idea Michael Bay was involved. Yeah, that was like one of his first like big projects. So he's got that, and he's got his performance in Mystery Men. Yeah, on... that was the that was the pitch for Pain and Gain. <laughs> <laughs> that one didn't actually make sense, but you know we'll roll with it. <laughs> also. Before we get to our summary, we'd like to ask you the question we ask all our guests on this program. Andrew, what is your favorite Carly Rae Jepsen song? All right, I knew you were going to ask this. And to be honest, I want to I wanna flip the script on you and ask you if you have a song you think would make me get Carly Rae Jepsen. Because every friend of mine is just wild about Carly Rae Jepsen. And I don't dislike her music, but it just tends to slide out of my brain. Like, it, nothing has stuck with me. Like, I remember... Call me maybe, and I really, 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 really like you. With the you know the two that were inescapable, but everything else I've tried, I don't remember it. Like I've tried because so many people I know are so enthusiastic, and nothing else has stuck with me. Is there something I'm missing where I should I should like grab onto something? The big one is your type. Your type, okay. That's what I was gonna gravitate to because like the ones you've mentioned, the big radio pop hits, they're her most happy. Songs, right. whereas what I sort of gravitate to when I listen to her music is the more openly melancholy sorts of stuff. Like See, I that, did not jam, like, so. I did not like uh, Max Landis's big uh, Carly Rae Jepsen. Oh, here's the secret formula behind all of her songs. But I do think that he tapped into one bit of truth that all her songs do have a sort of melancholy lovesickness to them, 
Okay. That, and that, the that, with the focus that you don't see in a lot of other stuff. And okay. the problem and with that is that he tried to stretch thing. out to 150 pages. That is, he did write 150 pages on that. However, that was covered better in um maybe two, possibly three sentences in the uh, Pitchfork review of Emotion Side B, where they said Carly Rae Jepsen, I'm paraphrasing, doesn't write songs about love. They write songs on the periphery of love. You can feel the gradu- the gravitational pull of it, but it's not actually present. So that's what like your type is about. Um, Boy problems. The one. Another great one. Boy problems. Um, I would also say favorite color is. I would say my favorite Carly Rae Jepsen song. That is her most heartfelt song. I think. There are I mean, also look, a lot the, of really good ones about that on uh, Emotion Side B, like Store, uh, Cry, Store. Roses. Yeah, essentially all of Emotion Side B. Uh, first time, even. Excellent. I mean, the big takeaway here is that everything Max Landis does has been done better, including yeah. be, yes. including being alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if John Landis has any other sons, but if he does, they are better sons than Max Landis. I saw this uh, scary movie special. It was like a Bravo 100, 100 scariest movie moments. It's from like 10 years ago or more. It's from before Max Landis was anybody. But Landis is one of the like panel discussion, you know, people who pops up on that as a talking head. And there's a segment about child's play and Landis says something about, how when his son was little, he would see the poster for Child's Play and freak out. And ever since then, I've contemplated the idea of just, like, tweeting the Child's Play <laughs> poster at Max Landis to try to drive him mad. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the official position of Spall Talk is fuck Max Landis. Good. Uh, we're, we're uh, but gonna... yeah, I, I, I appreciate these recommendations. I'm going to give them a try because I genuinely want to understand the appeal of Carly Rae Jepsen. Um, and I think it's eluding me in her singles. But maybe if I dig into the deep cuts, there might be something there for me. Yeah, I would say try to listen to the album Emotion as an album. Okay, because I, do, I do like albums I, as albums, so. Yeah, because when I first listened to it, and I think Neil had the same experience, like, it starts off with I Really Like You, which is a good song, but I wasn't really sold on it mm-hmm. until a few tracks in. Well, it and starts then out it... with Run Away With Me and I Really oh, yeah. Like You, so it's a double hit of the two most upbeat, poppy songs on the album. And as it you know gets farther in, it sort of brings out more of the sort of hidden melancholy. All That is a good one, also, that's, that's slower. Um... All That, I loved watching that in the 90s on Nickelodeon. <laughs> yeah, followed by her hit single, The Amanda Show. <laughs> Uh, her song Keenan and Kel with Lil Yachty. <laughs> I probably, after it came out, I probably listened to the Lil Yachty, Carly Rae Jepsen, It Takes Two. Too many times, to oh, be real. I, I love that song. I would just, I didn't have, I would just be driving and I would just, you know, at a red light, pull up the YouTube video. And then when it was done, I would just hit replay. I've I've done that with some and songs, and that's how I spent like a summer. Uh, I'm so glad to know I'm not the only one who has pulled up a YouTube video to stream through my car speakers just to get the music <laughs> for it. But for yet sure. also, and yet also, every time YouTube offers me like YouTube Red or YouTube Music, where it's like, here's you know your exclusive chance to do that, I'm like, fuck off. <laughs> Especially because like I I wouldn't pay for that music service if the videos still have the terrible quality of a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. Like there's no like there's very little bass 
in the audio for a YouTube video. And unless they fix that with YouTube Red, then I'll just get Spotify and actually listen to the songs I want to listen to. See, I have Google Play Music, so, like, that that gives me YouTube Red gratis. So I don't have to actually subscribe to YouTube Red. I can just, like, listen to the actual songs on, you know, Google Play Music. Gratis. I, I'm assuming that's a portmanteau of Gromit and Wallace. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That was good, and I'm proud of that. That's going to stick with me. (laughs) So, as our guest, Andrew, would you like to try summarizing the Enfield haunting in somewhere around a minute? Because we can't uh, legally call it a plot in 60 seconds. Well, uh, The Enfield Haunting is a miniseries, which is ostensibly based on a true story. But everything that happens in it has already happened in either The Exorcist uh, or The Changeling or Ghostwatch. And if you watch all those and add in Timothy Spall, you've pretty much got the entire gist of the story. I would like to pad this out to a minute, but that's pretty much all I got. <laughs> I, the, I, I've heard of both Ghostwatch and The Exorcist, but The Changeling, I know the Angelina Jolie movie, but I'm pretty sure that's not what you're referring to. Right. There is a um, a much lesser known uh, ghost uh, haunted house movie from, I want to say, 1980, very, very early 80s at any rate, uh, starring George C. Scott, and it's great. Um, and I would highly recommend it to just about anybody who likes movies about ghosts, um, in which George C. Scott is this um, – I haven't seen it in years, but I, if I recall, he's like a, a professor of music. I remember he's like teaching at a university, and he's a musician. Um, and his in the opening scene, his wife and daughter are killed in a car accident, and then he moves into this house to try to like compose and get away from his memories and whatnot, and the house is haunted – and he starts using – and he brings in like a like a, like a medium to try to figure out what this ghost wants and ends up kind of solving this uh, decades-old murder and in so doing is trying to kind of, you know, relieve himself of the guilt of the death of his, of his wife and child. So a lot of that was – I was reminded of, you know, watching this story in which that is very similar to the arc that Spall's character is going through. So, um, so you're saying it's like uh, if three colors blue – Met a murder mystery? Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, with George C. Scott. <laughs> um, anyway, it's great because George C. Scott, like, reacting to ghosts is is just a great thing to watch because, you know, it's George C. Scott and you just he just, mm-hmm. like, keeps screaming at this ghost. I, I'm imagining um, uh, the scene from Hardcore where he's just, like, looking at this off-screen, like, movie screen and he's just, like, screaming, Turn it off! Yeah, it's basically like this ball rel- like rolls down, like bounces down the stairs, and he recognizes it, re- never recognizes it as his like this ball that his daughter had, and he just like starts Aww. screaming, "What do you want?" at the house. Um, but it's yeah. a great movie, and yeah, I definitely, re- I don't know that like this that it was inspired by the real case that the Enfield haunting was based on, but it had a lot of similarities. I know, and I, I confirmed this in my my Wikipedia reading today um, that. 
Ghostwatch was directly inspired by the Enfield haunting, the real case. Um, yeah, yeah, if, the, the guy who wrote the book that this is based on, a guy, Lion Fairplay. He, guy he Fairplay. Also, he was also a consultant on Ghostwatch, like, credited. That makes sense. Uh, but yeah, Ghostwatch is amazing, and I think a lot of Americans probably haven't seen it, at least until recent years. Um, on the side was a BBC. About the, sorry, the side note about... Um, uh, George C. Scott is that there are two George C. Scott stories that I really like, and they're both about him being lied to by directors. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know the Strange Love one, but what's the other yep. one? The Strange Love one for those I'm just gonna recap it for people not familiar. Uh, Stanley Kubrick told George C. Scott to play his character in Doctor Strange Love, this general, as over the top and completely wild and he was like no it should it'd be better if he was more restrained and kubrick was like i get that but just for funsies we'll do one just warm up where you're doing it all crazy and the cameras won't even be rolling and then afterwards you can do it normal but the cameras were rolling and that was the final version um the other story of george c scott being lied to by a director is in the film Patton, uh which starts out with him giving this big speech in front of a huge American flag. And he's actually like, I'll do this movie, but listen to me. You got to put that big speech at the end of the movie because it won't work anywhere else. And he was like, got it. I absolutely will put that at the end of the movie, George C. Scott. And then he put it at the beginning and George C. Scott was like, ah, and he swore to never work with either of those directors again. <laughs> wow. Thing is, I think Kubrick was right for... Oh, I fully agree. 100%. Because, you know, Turgidson playing it down, that would just make him, like, the same as Jack D. Ripper. You need that contrast between those two figures. Yes. But enough about George C. Scott. Okay, yes, you're correct. Enough about George C. Scott. He was also in the film They Might Be Giants, which my favorite band got their name from. They sure did. Let's move on to our spalling moments and spall wonders. Uh, Andrew, as our guest, would you like to start off with either one? Well, thank you. Um, my Spall Wonder was definitely uh, the moment in which, uh, fairly early on in the miniseries, when uh, when uh, Spall's character, uh, Morris Gross and, uh, and Guy, Fair, Guy Fairplay, uh, have, have, like, are, they're getting to work when they, they've started taking this thing seriously, and... Fair plays like you can't you can't poltergeist proof an entire house and Spall just very determinedly replies I can try because that signaled the beginning of a story that's way more interesting than the one this miniseries actually ended up telling in my opinion I want a movie about Timothy Spall poltergeist proofing an entire house and that's the whole that's the whole thing that's all I want it's Home Alone but Kevin is Timothy Spall and Joe Pesci is a poltergeist that's exactly what it is yes. Give me that. That's sadly not quite what this miniseries is, but there was a there was a brief moment of hope there that this was going to get real interesting. <laughs> well, uh, my Spall wonder is also a Timothy Spall moment at the very beginning, and it's the the bit where we're introduced to him. He's sitting on a park bench watching this little girl go down a slide. You know, she goes down the slide like, "Watch me, Daddy!" and she she falls and hits her head and starts crying. He goes over and he's like, "Oh, it's all right, pet. Are you okay?" 
and he, like he checks the back of her head and there's like this gigantic wound on the back of her head and he, he wakes up in a cold sweat and that that sort of dream sequence uh recurs throughout the miniseries there's one there's one where he act where he's like taking an electric he, he's cutting his wife with an electric knife yeah. like she's yeah. like a piece of ham and she's just not reacting to it at all and that I, I love the sort of weird tone these dream sequences nail. Because yeah, they were the best parts, yeah. There, there when you is... grow looking too much like a snack. <laughs> <laughs> because there is a sort of twisted normality to them that really nails at, at least part of why dreams can be so affecting. Yes. Yeah, we should, I, I want to say up front, like, and I think it goes without saying that the best thing about this miniseries is Timothy Spall. He oh, is the best sure. worth watching. I like a lot of things on this show. Timothy Spall is a delight. Right. There's a re- there's a reason that y'all are doing this podcast about his work. Spall is doing this podcast. Yes. Well, there's a reason why y'all are doing this podcast. <laughs> well, there um, is a reason, but it it's more I thought up a funny pun and wanted to follow it through, and then we ended up finding out that Timothy Spall is actually like a really good actor. Right. Yeah. yeah no. If he was like a shitty actor or like a really bad person, this would have been a tough <laughs> podcast to do. Yeah, like like Neil, you and I have been like Twitter mutuals for a long time now, and the first time I don't remember how what <clears throat> at what point I found out you had this podcast. I think you'd already been doing it by the time I like saw you talking about it, and I immediately was like, oh well, that's definitely something where you had the idea for the title and then the podcast followed. Yeah. Yeah. Spallowed. Yeah. The pod the podcast followed. Um, <laughs> It's yeah, he's, got such a, he's got such a wide range of jobs. Like he'll, he'll take anything, it seems. But he is always doing his best in every movie, even when yeah. he's in perplexing garbage. Yeah, so he's be like, like one of the only actors who's been in both a Harry Potter movie and like a zero-budget uh, family comedy about Passover <laughs> and an Australian <laughs> YouTube star vehicle. <laughs> And a movie about two planets stuck in an upside in a mutual gravity relationship that's also sort of a metaphor for imperialism. I listened He'll... to that episode, like no joke. I listened to that episode earlier today in an effort to like kind of catch up because I I hadn't I was behind, and I wanted to be refreshed on what the show is like. Uh, and I I want to say um, the the moment where you described it as being a spring break T-shirt in a minor key is one of the. <laughs> That's one of the best descriptions of a movie I have ever heard. Regardless uh, of the... Thank you. That's, that's good <laughs> uh, and Eric, your Spall Wonder? My Spall Wonder? Uh, there were two that I was uh, I was kind of 50-50 on, but it, the one that I decided to go with. So there's a scene where they uh, they decide that they're going to try to talk to um, the, uh, the poltergeist after the mediums that they brought were emphatically like, do not try to talk to the poltergeist. Um, so they set up the, the standard, like, it, the, the poltergeist at this point won't talk to them. It will just, like, make knocking sounds around the house. So they decide to use the standardly agreed upon one knock for no, two knocks for yes system. And they're like, okay, uh, what do you think about using that system to talk to us? And the monster just makes all sorts of knocks all over the place because it's being an asshole. And they they find out that the girl that this podcast, podcast, this poltergeist (laughs) has been bugging um, is the only one that it will accept questions from. So they're like, okay, you have to talk to the the poltergeist. Ask it a question. And she goes, "Um, what's your favorite color? 
and then player player is like, no, you have to you have to ask it a yes or no question, otherwise it won't respond. Okay, it's your favorite color red. It's like, how about we ask the poltergeist? It's dead. <laughs> and I just thought that was that was endearing. Yeah, yeah, that that entire scene is just some really great sort of understated comedy. There's another moment in that same scene where they're asking, you know, did you die in that chair that Maurice is sitting in? And it says yes. And uh, and one of them's like, I, you should probably get out of that chair. And uh, Spot was like, oh, well, he's got no use for it now. And it just flings him out of the chair. <laughs> it's good. It, it's certainly making good use of the comedic gifts of its cast. Yeah. Yes. I just want to point out what a uh, what a Pandora's box you've opened by proposing the idea of confusing a podcast with a poltergeist. Yeah, yeah, I would love to see a house what? that was uh, haunted by a podcast. <laughs> I'm haunted by Joe Rogan. All right, uh, I, uh, l- let's talk to it. Uh, one knock for yes, two knocks for no. Do you fucking hate going to the post office? I I wake. <laughs> I wake up and there's a message written in blood on my walls, and it's, who are your guys? <laughs> I'm your middleist specter, Travis. <laughs> oh, I, I'm getting, I'm getting a message from the great beyond. If, if you go to purplematters.com and enter the mm-hmm. code Poltergeist, you'll get 5% off your first purchase. Use the offer code, leave this place, and get an extra <laughs> bonus. I didn't order a nature box subscription but these delicious and healthful snacks just appeared on my doorstep my blue apron order cooked itself a horse's head in your casper mattress (laughs) oh this house was built on a racist impression burial ground (laughs) three mediocre white guys died in this very house No matter how many times I turn the fan off, it's always in the background. (laughs) (laughs) This is uh, in the same cinematic universe as the werewolf movie Like and Subscribe. (laughs) (laughs) Good riffs all around today. We're really killing it. (laughs) Also, the the vampire movie Blogging Sucks. (laughs) You ever watch that show Dog with a Blog? I have not probably shouldn't have it was <laughs> it was on disney channel when you were like 18 it would have been weird for you to watch it yeah i was i was an adult who was not interested in watching it but i remember seeing the title and just kind of going into a fugue state for a minute <laughs> hard hard retweet on that i also chose not to watch that anyway uh would any of us like to go for our spalling moment um i guess i can i can go um my spalling moment is kind of spread throughout the film, but especially the first time where they clearly did not prepare the cast on set for what exactly they were going to do uh, for the the voice of the the ghost or the demon. Because the first time the little girl opens her mouth and this like enormous guttural adult man Satan voice <laughs> bellows through the room and they're all just like, oh, stop pretending. It's like, yeah. no. No, that clearly did not come from this little girl, and it's like yeah, it, it they they just they they so like no sell it as as just mm-hmm. nothing. It's like no, she definitely didn't fake that, and it really threw me out of the movie for a second to be like, oh, they don't 
they didn't know what that was going to sound like. Otherwise, see, they would be acting entirely differently in this scene. For sure. See, that that struck me as, you know, characteristic British understatement. Keeping a stiff upper <laughs> lip while, while your daughter is talking in an adult keeping man's up, voice. Good, keeping good up point. <laughs> yes. Oh, I mean, gosh. to oh, be fair, really? a lot of... A lot of this movie was me trying to figure out what tone they were going for, because there were so moments that were so big that it was impossible to imagine they weren't trying to be funny. But also, they weren't consistent enough about it that I felt like it was supposed to be funny. I was sort of baffled by the tone of this miniseries. As someone who lists uh, Southland Tales as one of their favorite films, I really loved that sort of really inconsistent tone. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I liked it. Don't get me wrong. That that was definitely the best thing it had going for it was this occasionally extremely silly instances of hauntings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, Eric, you're a spalling moment. All right. Haunted if you got it, baby. What is my <laughs> spalling moment? Let me take a gander at these notes. Yeah, there's one of the weirder ways that the poltergeist manifests itself and one that I have not seen in other poltergeist movies Granted, I have seen probably at or statistically near zero Poltergeist movies, but one that I was not familiar with as part of the Poltergeist thing was she sees what she calls Tinkerbell, um, which I guess I assume in the script was written as this like sparkly light that appears, but it's literally just somebody shining a pen light onto a ceiling, yeah. and then it goes down the walls, and then it goes onto her. And it burns her. I, and there's and a I bit, was like, this is dumb. I, and there's a bit in the hospital later in the movie when she's been institutionalized. Uh, she's not crazy. You're the one that's crazy. Oh, and, she like, she's a Pepsi. <laughs> and, and she sees this light and she tells her nurse, hey, there's there's that light. And the nurse like sort of says, oh, that's just a, a glint off some sort of metal thing. And she like passes her hand over it to make it go away to show her. And, and of course, then it also comes back and actually does mess with her. Mm-hmm. She's like, nurse, there's a light, and it never goes out. <laughs> uh, by the way, I this the the image for this episode is definitely going to be the post the poster for Poltergeist, uh, edited to be Poltercast. <laughs> <laughs> Take me out tonight. Where there's music and there's people and they're young and alive. It's a shame that Morrissey is racist now. Where we're living in a house where someone has died. <laughs> well, it's it's a bit of a misnomer to say he's racist now. He's been racist for like 30 years, and he's even more vocal about it now. Heaven, yeah, knows, I... I, heaven knows I'm racist now. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was going through Twitter and like a Twitter moment was recommended and it's like Morrissey fans are not pleased with what he said at the latest concert and I'm like that this is news that always happens. <laughs> you know that real big fish sh- song? She's famous now. I do not. Neither do I. Re- Dang, guess you guys aren't as cool <laughs> in high school as I was. Uh, we have not big- started the podcast Scott Talk. Much as we tried to start it, that. It never came to fruition. Yeah. Uh, I might start having a recurring column at uh, at BlackSquareRadio.com called the uh, Church of Scientology. 
where I <laughs> listen to and review ska albums and then rank them on this little graph that I've devised. It has two axes, one of which goes uh, from angry to chill, and the other one goes from happy to sad. Oh, I, the, the political <laughs> compass. Effective, you can effectively rank every Sky album. But that's more to the point. Real Big Fish have a song called She's Famous Now. Um, there's rumors that it's about Gwen Stefani, but it actually isn't. It says, uh, the course is, she used to be my girl, but now she's famous. Anyway, he's racist now, is what that was all building to. It's about Morrissey. <laughs> That was not worth any part of the build-up. That, that's song. the impression that I got. Can I say I went? Fuck I went to. Know. I went to a burger place a while back. A I local, like, yeah, I know, right? Um. Anyway, I walked into this burger place and there was a Smith song playing, and I was like, "Yeah, suck it, Morrissey." <laughs> I hope it wasn't me. meat as murder. It, Both no, because I don't it wouldn't I, fit, I, and because that song completely sucks. I I want I want to. I want to say it was How Soon Is Now, because that's the only Smith song that you'll ever hear in public in the wild, probably. But, uh, yeah, I just remember thinking, like, oh, yeah, I'll, I will I will, I will, eat an entire cow, please. Thank you. Was it his collab with, um, his, his collab with uh, Ja Rule? Is Meat. that a thing that happened? It's called Meat, colon, it's murder. <laughs> Anyway, um, for my spalling moment, I'm picking a, a segment from the, the first episode of the three-episode miniseries, uh, and it's the first real activity of the poltergeist. And I'm, I'm going to describe the scene first, and then I'm going to describe an ex an, a very similar scene from a different piece of media. So she's got this, you know, this viewfinder thing, the thing with, like, the little reel. And unlike American ones, it's not like a, a circular disc, and you hit the lever and it rotates. It's like a... a, a a rectangle it just goes up and down and so she goes she goes to one picture and it's just like a picture of this sort of pathway in england because apparently english viewmasters were not as interesting as american ones where you got like oh here's a bunch of pictures from mork and mindy or something and so she hits the thing and it's a guy and a horse and she hits it again and there's the the poltergeist guy and it just runs up to her it just runs up to the camera and goes blah she screams and throws the viewfinder away. And what this reminded me of is there's a scene in The Bye Bye Man where one of the one, where one of the kids who's afflicted with the the Bye Bye Man memetic virus whatever it is. The premise of The Bye Bye Man is very unclear. Have you ever seen the Spanish language version of The Bye Bye Man? No, I have never seen the Spanish language version of The Bye Bye Man. What is it called, Eric? The Adios Amigo. <laughs> The see you later alligator. <laughs> there are endless permutations of that. It's a fun little game you can play in your spare time. That's a small talk approved road trip game. But anyway, one of the kids afflicted with this uh, odd sort of thought virus is going through pictures in his phone in class, and he passes by one that's just like a guy standing in a train car that looks like a, a last known photograph, and like he's looking at it very confused. And it sort of runs up to the camera, and the jump scare is punctuated by the teacher slamming his hand on his desk and being like, Kid, are you paying attention? <laughs> and it's it's so weird that, two, that, that, that 
idea was executed in in those two very similar ways. <laughs> it's also like that scene from the new It, but worse. I have not seen the new It. It was surprisingly good in general. I have not seen the old It, and I have never read It. Um, I... But yeah, it was it was it was in a lot of the trailers too, where they're like flipping through these. Uh, oh yeah, that one. And the clown like slowly gets closer and closer. It was okay. like that, but executed w- way more poorly. Okay, I, I recognize yeah. that from the trailers. Yeah, I was surprised how much I liked the new It, but uh, that's that's a, I've, another story. I've interacted with It in the most pretentious and annoying way possible in that I have never seen any version of it, but I did read the book. <laughs> I haven't read any like Stephen King since either middle school or technically we read his essay on why people like horror in uh, my uh, first year composition class. But, like, Stephen King's fiction, I have not interacted with it since middle school when I read The Green Mile and was like, this sucks. The last time I read Stephen King was uh, freshman year of college, where, well, that summer going into freshman year of college, where I read probably half of The Stand and then was like, I'm going to put this down for a while and read another book. And then a year and a half later, I gave it to a Books to Prisoners event because I reconciled myself to the fact that i was never going to finish reading it i i'm i'm i've never been i i've never liked stephen king's work as much as i want to because i like the dude he seems very nice uh and i like a lot of the stuff he he was in a band with dave barry and that's all i need to approve the rock bottom remainders yeah yeah i like a lot of the stuff he says in his columns i remember reading his entertainment weekly columns like 10 or 12 I, years ago, whenever that was. I also remember reading them in uh, middle school homeroom because Entertainment Weekly was one of the magazines that my homeroom teacher had in her magazine rack. And and I love a lot of the... I, I like a lot of the things that have been made out of his work, like Kubrick's Shining is one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. But every time, I, every time I try to get direct with either his books or the scripts he has written himself, like the Shining miniseries, or yeah. that, that doesn't... That doesn't I, that doesn't work well for me. Uh, what are your opinions on the uh, the Shining segment in Ready Player One? I read that that was a thing, and I almost threw my phone across the room. And that's, about the, that's about the entirety of my. Of what my are your experience. thoughts? What are your thoughts on the Shining from Spot uh, from Simpsons? Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, tell me all your thoughts on God, because I'm on my way to meet her. <laughs> but uh. Here's a joke that I was saving. I don't think it's really necessary to read The Stand when we've already got the anime. I don't know what that, what you mean. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) I should have fucking known it was JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, your new favorite Naruto. (laughs) It's like, it's like, it's like One Piece, but if everybody dressed like Prince. Basically, yeah. (laughs) That is a very accurate summary. It is great, and it's very accurate. Here's a I, joke that I've been saving, and I forgot to say it when we introduced the, the character of Guy Playfair. <laughs> Guy Playfair sounds like the name of the character who walks you through a video game tutorial. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's like yeah. a Terry Hintz's cousin. <laughs> also, as long as we're doing delayed delayed jokes, uh, the au revoir home. Say again? That's the bye-bye man in French. (laughs) (laughs) Au revoir home is also what I say when I leave town.
There's been a small part of the back of my brain that ever since we talked about foreign titles for the Bye Bye Man has been trying to land on the funniest one, and I think the best one I've come up with so far is the Au Revoir Home. <laughs> the, au, the Au Revoir Au Revoir Home. Wow, Monsieur. The Au Revoir Simone. Ah. <laughs> uh. Anyway, let's let's start talking about the movie. Uh, Timothy Spall's character. We've we've uh, alluded to his backstory, but we haven't really gotten into it. Um, Correct. <laughs> could someone who's not dying of laughter do it? So okay, I want another thing I want to say up front is there were large swaths of this three-hour adventure where I was not paying a whole lot of attention. And I'm ashamed of that because I listen to movie podcasts sometimes where the host will admit that they weren't paying a lot of attention and I get furious because I'm like, look, you were going to record a thing about this. How were you not like how bad is your attention span? And yet here I am. Uh, I spent la- a large part of watching this also editing a video, which means my attention was extremely divided. So to be completely upfront, a lot of this, I was not paying a whole lot of attention. Right. Um, but my I gave you time to calm down so I can give a, right. uh, a more thorough dis- uh, discussion of uh, Timothy Spall's character arc. I'm, ve- I'm very busy this week, and I wanted to apologize about it, because I would be mad at myself. If very I understandable. I've also been very busy this week. <laughs> and uh, we came very close to not having seen this on time, given uh, the unforeseen possibility that we might not be able to both watch Hulu at the same time. Yeah, also. I- this did I not need to be was... three hours long, I'll say that. No, right. not at all. Well, technically, it's two hours and 15 minutes since each well, one is a 45-minute uh, thing. Fair enough. It didn't need to be two hours and 45 minutes long, either. Like to I be just honest, said, it's two hours and 15 minutes, so you're adding a whole 30 yeah. minutes onto there. It Look, definitely it did, did not it need to be four and a half hours long. It did <laughs> not need to crack the 90-minute point, is what it is. Yeah, yeah. I it, don't... I agree with a lot of the choices they made but i think it was pointless to make it exactly four hours and 20 minutes long (laughs) i think if it had been like a 90 minute feature film this would have been like a charming little spell fest yeah yeah if it had been two episodes and they had sort of condensed some things that that might have been would have been would have been great but anyway i feel like they could have condensed all the stuff about him and his wife that i alternated between not understanding and not remembering yeah. I should really like that part. But anyway, Maurice Gross, he is this uh, it... worker for the Society for Cyclical, sorry, the Society for Psychical Research with which uh, Janet, the uh, the, pol- the poltergeisted child in this uh, Hodgson home, mispronounces as the Society for Cycl- Cyclical Re- Research, who is called to this house in Enfield after, you know, some, uh, some uh, poltergeisty disturbances. And unbeknownst to them or us at first his daughter has recently died and her name was also janet so he's got this sort of unresolved uh connection to the name janet which sort of ends up being projected onto this family and this this girl and uh this as... uh this miniseries was based in part on batman versus superman dawn of justice <laughs> If only Larry Fong had shot this. <laughs> if only he... I'm not going to finish that. Never mind. I was going to be mean about a person who I don't actually know anything about. Were you going to... Were you going to go like for a follow-up on my Larry Fong joke? Or were you going to go for yes. something about... It was going to be a Larry Fong. Do you know who Larry Fong is, Eric? Nope. He is a cinematographer who also shot a Kong Skull Island. 
Okay. Fong Skull Island? <laughs> <laughs> Fong Skull best part. Island. <laughs> Larry Fong is the best part of Kong Skull Island, so I'd be fine with that renaming. Agreed. Now I just want to talk about how 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 unexpectedly good the cinematography for Kong Skull Island is. That movie like, is bananas. Yeah, like get the fuck out of my house. <laughs> I, I I I meant it, and that is how I would have phrased it, regardless of the fact that it was also a, a monkey joke. Len yeah. Stefani s. Like, <laughs> <laughs> look, I was going to spell it correctly. <laughs> But you know what? This, this back, is not girl. this is not a podcast where I t- <laughs> this is not a podcast where I talk about really out there lens choices. It's a podcast where we talk about the life and career of Timothy Small. So later in the film, we uh, find out that he sort of blames himself and if his he wife had worn for his some, daughter's if he had, death. If he had worn some strange-looking glasses, this could have been about some weird lens choices. But they're just <laughs> normal-looking. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry. I'm gonna be. Th- I'm gonna. I'm gonna be thinking about Spala Batgirl for the rest of the episode. <laughs> I apologize. I'm just randomly. Well done. But um, I've kind of gotten off track. What Timothy Spall's character arc in this? Letting go of his daughter's death because he blames himself and his wife for letting her get on the motorcycle of his uh of her boyfriend. And uh, there's this particular subplot where uh, early in the in the uh, series. There's this really good scene where he's talking about the first time he met his wife, and it's intercutting with her meeting some suspicious man who we don't know, and it's implied that they're having some sort of an affair. And it turns out he's actually a medium, and she's trying to get in touch with her daughter's spirit, and that and that's what he's mad about. <laughs> That that he that she's going to a medium instead of trusting the Society for Psychical Research to help find a way to talk to their daughter again. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I don't think I explained that that well. Would either of you like to jump in and help? I did not understand it when I watched it. I you know. Every time there was another scene with his wife, I realized that I had a very vague memory of the last scene with his wife, and I could only <laughs> vaguely put the pieces together. I guess his their daughter died in a, in a bike accident. Correct. And then he's like, man, this sucks. I don't like this at all. And um, I don't know. One star. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That that Man, that is I, I technically this, a correct would... summary of his arc in this movie. <laughs> like, he doesn't even... like the fact that his daughter died. I was like, I would give this one spall if that. This is like it's like the pancakes divorce pancakes episode of review, but even darker. <laughs> <laughs> but what I was trying to get at at the end of that sentence, but I had completely forgotten where it was going, is that. <clears throat> So this uh, miniseries it sort of plays it both ways with the, is this poltergeist a metaphor or not? Is it, you know, a real thing that's happening or is it, you know, an externalization of, you know, the internal conflicts in this in these people? Spall's inability to get over his daughter's death and Janet's inability to get over a lot of bad shit that's happening to her at this time. Like, her parents are separated, she's being bullied at school, she's just not... A very happy person and rightfully so she is not in a great situation and it sort of plays it both ways 
there's a scene at the end where Spall is like, you know, sometimes they say that poltergeists are are what happen when people sort of repress their anger. You can't you can't hold anger in. It's like it's like air under linoleum. It'll pop up somewhere else. And so he takes her out to this uh, airfield to start to just scream out whatever she's angry about where nobody will hear it. And it is this very endearing scene where she's finally able to get out everything that's just been sort of gnawing at her this entire movie. And he's able to, you know, yell out everything he's been angry about. And this does, at least um, for a little bit, it helps uh, them move past this uh, poltergeist. It, it, it sort of dispels it for a little bit. It's not as much of a problem. And so that's, that sort of coexists with the poltergeist having actual physical effects in the real world. And I kind of like that they tried to play it both ways, but I'm also kind of conflicted. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to say your movie is based on a true story, you can't, you can't have that, that scene where like the daughter forgives him via the little girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, all right, this clearly didn't happen exactly as you're showing it to me. Yeah, yeah, they 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 sort of play it loose with the the real events, and I I kind of like that they sort of did not try to pretend this is exactly what really happened. Right. They understandably made changes for the sake of presenting a a narrative, even if that wasn't as you know out there as what you envisioned when he was like you can't ch- you can't poltergeist proof an entire house <laughs> this this was not home alone with ghosts to be honest i uh, i mean i guess i knew it was based on a true story but because of the movies that have given themselves that label i completely disregard it every time i see it yeah i just assume it's a lie like i'm not like what story is this how how many liberties are they taken? I just assume they made something up. Mm-hmm. Like it, what it's basically promising is there were real people who had these names, and right. that's all the connection it needs to have. So, speaking of the poltergeist, uh, when I was looking through Wikipedia, I found this particularly interesting bit from a, a review from Grace Dent in the Independent. Quote: The Enfield Hauntings Poltergeist was about as scary as a drunk uncle. End quote. Hmm. And Drunkle. I would just like, <laughs> I'd just like to say... Drunkle Adams. <laughs> What's Uncle Adams up to right now? Do you think Uncle Adams would be on Spall Talk if we asked him? Uh, if, if it could help him stop bullying in Canada. <laughs> Because that, that is like his, his hustle. He is an anti-bullying speaker in Canada. And and Damn. the, uh, the raps about, no, he's not Eminem, no, he's not Macklemore, he's Uncle Adams, and yo, he's winning rap awards. They're just uh, an accessory to that. God bless him. No wonder if he'll run for president. <laughs> I hope he does. Uh, Prime Minister. No, American president. <laughs> We There's passed... no reason not to. I don't care what we... anyone. We passed the Uncle Adams Amendment to the Constitution <laughs> that allows people born in Canada to run. As long as Carly they Ray rip the mic without right talking about drugs, guns, or hoes. Ooh, let me think about that because I don't know if Carly Rae Jepsen fits that then. I don't know if she'll be able to run for president. I mean, she does <laughs> rip the mic. And I don't think she's uh, talked about uh, drugs or guns in any of her songs. I just want Carly Rae Jepsen to release a song about just fucking icing people. 
<laughs> Put a blower in his lap, march myself to the court like, bitch, I did that. Call me Dick Cheney because I'm about to go hunting. Pull the beam on you like the infield haunting. <laughs> Fuck you. I didn't like that when you texted that to me, and I don't like it now. I'm so glad I made it into the show. <laughs> <laughs> this I... isn't... This is I, unrelated. It's just something that I'm seeing on Twitter right now. But every time I see a Jordan B. Peterson, he looks more dying than he was the last time I saw him. <laughs> it's like the portrait of Dorian Gray, except the portrait is going through the horse <laughs> instead of him. <sighs> like, he looks like the Canadian version of Ben Affleck. <laughs> Getting an ill-advised back tattoo. <laughs> Getting into weird Jungian psychiatry instead of CrossFit. He looks like if you dried out John Cusack in the sun. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like an acid-washed John Cusack. Yeah. Anyway, what were you saying about Spall? Um, we started talking about the, uh, the, the poltergeist and, uh, the, the... It's about as scary as a drunk uncle. Uh, oh, right, because I started fucking talking about Uncle Adams. Yeah, sorry about that. And I was about to say that that is a metaphor that lends itself to a very varied array of interpretations. Mm-hmm. And I, I literally didn't know how to interpret it at first, and I was like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is as scary as uh, uh, emotional abuse prompted by an unresolved drinking problem. But then I clicked to read the rest of the article and like, oh, you mean it's not scary at all? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not scary in the way that looking through a viewfinder and seeing an old man in corpse yeah. makeup go ooga booga booga at you like your courage the cowardly dog. <laughs> I, oh my god, I, I'm just realizing that this is just of a story about a family being haunted by Eustace. <laughs> so, um... Return. I, I keep laughing too much to actually think of anything to say. So, Eric, you put in the chat, I also have a Stephen King dance macabre-style theory on what real-life fear makes this kind of horror so resonant. Could you go into that? Yeah, yes. share that. I would love to. Uh, you know, we were talking about Stephen King earlier... To my, I guess, great shame, because I am always making fun of people who say that their favorite Christmas movie is Die Hard or something like that. Um, my favorite Stephen King book is Dance Macabre, and Dance Macabre is not a novel. Dance Macabre is Stephen King's book on essentially the theory and practice of writing horror. It's his thoughts on what makes things scary and why horror can be so affecting. So is that I before think... or after on writing? It is after, I think. He's expounding more on some of the stuff he put forth in on writing. Okay. But I also have not read on writing, so I know. It's but, all right. Um, like, but... the entire last half is about him uh, getting over his drugs and alcohol addiction and then getting hit by a car. Damn. You know, he was so uh, high in cocaine that he does not remember writing the screenplay for Cujo. Yeah. Or the book. Um, does he remember the recording the trailer for Maximum Overdrive? God, I hope so. But anyway, <laughs> uh, in Dance Macabre, he puts forth the theory that the reason that there are certain horror archetypes that are so prevalent and that recur so often is that every great horror archetype is a sort of stand-in for something that actually frightens you, something that ha that exists in real life that, you know, you sort of sublimate that fear into this, which is like... a uh, 
uh, werewolf, it's like commonly agreed, you know, werewolves is about how terrifying puberty can be. And like, if you're afraid of vampires, it's actually foreigners that you're actually afraid of and that sort of thing. So I was going into this and trying to figure out what, you know, what fear are they sublimating in this poltergeist? And, you know, Timothy Spall, obviously, there's the fear of losing a child. Um, and towards the end, as the poltergeist and, you know, Janet's symptoms get more developed, it becomes clear that they're sublimating a fear of mental illness. Uh, but early on, I would attest that this and many other haunted house stories are about a fear of homeownership. Uh, like, there's a lot of uh, things creaking where, you know, you're supposed to be afraid because that's a poltergeist, but that sublimates the real fear, which is, oh, shit, I might need to replace all those pipes in the basement. You know, fear of having to call in a contractor. <laughs> Y'all were supposed to be laughing a lot more after I put that forward. That did not go the way I had hoped it would. I... I'm sorry, I... that was funny. I'm also distracted now by thinking about how Maximum Overdrive is Stephen King's Station to Station. <laughs> <laughs> it's just and, a year that's gone. And I'm just sort of like uh, tr- considering like the the ideas you've put forth in that because like I think you're onto something. I agree. It was and too like, good a point to laugh at, is the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and like not only like you, you you say like a fear of mental illness, and that that is you know, very true, but, like, it, it's it's a bit more specific than that. There's this really, really good scene, actually, where Janet is, you know, she sort of gets herself locked outside her house, and, you know, she tries to go over to this window, and she sees herself at the table, and she starts, you know, verbally abusing her family members and just destroying this room, and she's locked outside, and she can't do anything to stop it, and, like, that, a bit more specifically, seems to be what this fear is, not being able to control either your body or your actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this is not as funny as when we're making fun of how Jordan Peterson looks, but, you know. Yeah, this this is this is the serious part of the album. He he looks like he looks like if Morrissey and John Lurie had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, while you guys were making jokes, I looked up a picture of Jordan Peterson, but then I was too late to join in. So I'm glad we've cycled back around to this. Uh, speaking of delayed jokes, he kind of looks like if you put Ray Wise's face through a taffy puller. <laughs> uh, he looks like a. Uh... If God's Not Dead was based on a real story, he's the guy they'd play footage of at the end next to Kevin Sorbo. So, like, <laughs> like at the end of a pain and gain where you see the mugshots of the real people with, like, died in mm-hmm. prison. He does, like many other people, he does look like, you know, there's a lot of celebrities who look like if this celebrity was not attractive enough to be famous, they'd look like Jordan Peterson. I don't know if that made sense. Yeah, I get you. Jordan Peterson looks like uh, which was the thin one in a Laurel and Hardy? I I don't know. I, I'm gonna say he's the Stan Laurel to to Zizek's Oliver Hardy. <laughs> Wait, now I gotta be sure I was right about that. Laurel, I think it was Laurel. But like they they like com- the two of them standing together do yes. make for this sort of comic pair in terms of like stature and frame. I, you know that picture that was going around of, like, the, the artist that made Bert if he was a real person? That's basically <laughs> Jordan Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> Ernie, That's I'm true. trying to defeat the Dragon of Chaos. <laughs> Ernie. Oh, Bert, you're talking about that Dragon of Chaos. I just need this rubber ducky. Burp, burp. 
clean your room, Bert. Or Ernie, what the fuck ever. I, I, I was just realizing my, 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 uh, Bert voice is just Squidward. And that's who yeah. Jordan Peterson is. Yeah, I was wondering if that was your Bert voice or your Jordan Peterson voice, because neither of them were very accurate. Would you shut up, SpongeBob? I'm trying to be boring. Look, if if Bert had sex with Squidward, Jordan Peterson would happen, <laughs> and everything would yeah. end because everything everything would end because Bert no, would drown. I hate myself for even saying those words. All right, well, I hope you're enjoying the final episode of Spall Talk. Uh, uh, it's fortuitous that this episode is number 30, because we're getting surprisingly triple X on here. Fuck you. <laughs> uh, so we mentioned the, the scene with the medium in passing, and uh, I, I think we might want to go into it a little bit farther, because there is a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I can take the lead on this, if in y'all don't oppose uh yeah it's because i was messing with my headphones my bad um i'm fidgety so guy playfair he says to timothy spall like we should probably get a medium and you know have them try to talk to the poltergeist and timothy spall is like oh mediums are all crooks they're all full of shit unlike we respectable ghost hunters you know, we're the we're the less reputable ghost hunters at the Ghost Hunters Society, but we're still more reputable than those sham mediums. And he's like, it, okay. it's like it's like the Ghostbusters looking down on somebody for being, uh, yeah, unprofessional. Yeah, and Guy Playfair is like, well, consider this. What if we still did that? And the little girl is like, what well, can it hurt? So he's like, oh, okay, I guess we're doing this. And so. They have this couple come over, and they're mediums. And she's like, I'm going to sit here and channel the poltergeist. It might get a little bit intense, but, you know, my husband here knows how to take care of that. And so they're doing that, and she starts speaking like the poltergeist. And then he starts trying to, you know, exercise her. And uh, it it doesn't go so well. Uh, she starts getting too into the poltergeist thing, and he's like, don't you think we should pack it in now? And then she gets even harsher and starts hurting him more. It becomes clear that they're shams, and they're they're way over their head here. Uh, And I thought it was very fun. Well, I don't know if fun's the word, but I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And then, so I I don't remember the rest that happens. Yeah, yeah, there's this bit where the, the guy is holding this mirror, and he's like, you're a child of God, go to the light. And she's, you know, grabbing his hand, and he, he's trying to sort of subtly get her back in the kayfabe, like, not not so hard, Lily, or something like that. And, like, there's blood coming out of where, like, the mirror is digging into his hand. Yeah, he's holding a mirror and being like, ah, look at yourself, look at what you could be if you accepted the love of Jesus, or something. Yeah, the, the whole spirituality thing is very weird because there's a bit where Guy Playfair is doing the exorcism and he's like, there's no hell, but there is a heaven. <laughs> yeah, that was I noticed weird. that too. The also, this is interesting. Speaking of Bert and Ernie, can I just say Guy Playfair also sounds like a character Frank Oz would have performed. <laughs> yeah. uh, Frank Oz, who that prison is named after. <laughs> Wait, you mean that HBO show wasn't like a biography? I never watched it. No, no, it's a it's a show about the the real prison named Australia. 
No, it's it's the prison named after Frank Oz, who was well known for his Oz books that they made that movie out of. <laughs> and then it got turned from a prison into a country that has its own mini prisons where they keep migrants. <laughs> that is true. They do have a, a big thing where they imprison migrants who, you know, have not been convicted of any crimes. And they remade Stepford Wives there. We would never do that in America. <laughs> what, remake Stepford Wives or Imprison Migrants? Wait, was that an Australian movie? When no, it's Fra- it's the Frank it was a Frank Oz movie that was. That was oh, I also I just want to say that one of my, got... my single, I think my single favorite thing I've ever seen a director say about their own movie was an interviewer said who I, I researched a bunch of Frank Oz stuff because I was I wrote a thing about him for Looper and there was this great interview where the interviewer said I forget what site it was for but the interviewer said. So, your Stepford Wise remake, and Frank Oz's only comment was, I fucked up. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Matthew Broderick was in that, right? <laughs> it was Broderick and Kidman. Oh. I'd love it. I'd love it. Oh, oh wow. God, it, was, it, was, it was pretty bad, and no one involved will deny it. I guess you don't gotta love it or leave it. <laughs> you but gotta... you, do got, you do gotta... Broderick. I don't know where I was going with that. I was thinking about what sort of pun I could make off of Broderick, so I was just sort of free associating, and I thought um, of Juanita Broderick, and I'm like, I'm gonna back off on that. That's not gonna go anywhere, Thompson. I mean, we could we could joke about how Matthew Broderick was responsible for a person being dead, and still some of his movies are worse than that. But I'm not I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that that's an opportunity for comedy. That is true. What movies specifically? I don't know. <laughs> Is there any Matthew Broderick movie where you're like, I would be okay if instead he had killed two people and then this movie hadn't been made? Is there any movies where you would make that trade-off for? Like, any I mean, movies? No. Or like, because one that's coming to mind is the producer's remake. I, think I don't think got, it's that bad. I think American Godzilla was much worse. Ugh, that is true. I, I kind of wish that had been the title, like American Kickboxer, American Movie, American Splendor, American Godzilla. Young American Godzilla will come back <laughs> for liberty. She's an American beauty. I'm an American, American Godzilla. Godzilla. Oh. Oh. Speaking of Fall Out Boy, let's return to this thing we left off on. And um, God, what were we talking about before we got into that Matthew Broderick? Okay, because uh. it started out, it was like Frank Oz... Because um, uh, you say something about uh, a guy play fire sounding like someone Frank Oz's voice, right? And that was we're talking about the mediums. Yes, yes. Because we I will point into out, Ernie. they were neither small nor were they at large. Um, <sighs> and you know, I would like to return a little bit to the the sort of strange spirituality of the movie in which Guy Playfair does tell the uh, the sort of ghost that's haunting Janet that. There is not a hell. Yeah, yeah, that is... I don't get that. I, I, yeah, it's like, uh, there's no hell, that's what you're afraid of, but there is a heaven, so... I, I, I'm not sure what his religious beliefs are, either, so I, maybe he's lying to sort of sweet-talk the ghost into leaving her body? Yeah, it was weird to spend, you know a three-episode miniseries on this story and not go more into that. This thing that kind of left us all being like, what now? This would have ruled if it talked a lot more about their sort of mythology, because I love that shit. 
Yeah, this this is definitely trying to be more of a story about uh, Maurice and Janet both getting over their uh, their their sort of mutual hangups about like you know Janet's her father's gone she's angry about that uh, Spall his daughter is dead and he's angry about that then sort of getting past that tied into this sort of larger thing about ghosts and uh, we have been going on a while, a while so before we get to uh, uh, tying this up and shipping it out I'd like to talk about Janet's performance because all the, the sort of child actors in this movie were surprisingly good but Janet really stood out oh she killed yeah. it agreed yeah I, I've already mentioned the scene where she's sort of locked outside the house and watching herself but and we've also talked about the airport scene but there are a lot of like really good scenes with her and I wish I could read my notes to figure out if I wrote down any of them. Because, like, the only note of mine... Oh, did we mention Spall's daughter? She died at 420. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was her, her time of death. And listeners, if we release this late, just a note of context, we are recording on April the 20th. Yo, if you die on 420, you're going to be blazing it for eternity. So think about that next time you're going to light up that wacky tobacco. Uh, blazing well, just was... like your dead homie. <laughs> <laughs> there is a scene where Guy... I, I've heard the phrase wacky tobacco before, but Guy play Playfair does in fact say, you know, maybe you should stop smoking the wacky backy. And I'm like, oh, I hate yeah. that. Yeah, that's, that's terrible. That that's when this guy is like a what looking over the footage that they've recorded, and in one of the scenes where the poltergeist has sort of made it so they can't see that she's being strangled, he's sort of listening to it over and over. And he's like, "Oh, it's clear as day. Can't you hear it? He's saying my name." And <laughs> that that's part of the sort of general low rentness of this operation that I love. Like I think we've already mentioned either here or in the pre-show discussion the bit where uh, the poltergeist is demonstrating demonstrating its power by tossing marbles around after uh, Guy Playfair pulls out what looks like a sort of pocket radio that emits a sort of buzzing noise to sort of draw it out. And, like, the end of that scene, after he's being pelted with marbles, and he's like, oh, th this isn't a real poltergeist, this is a bunch of children playing around. He accidentally walks backwards and steps on his own device. Mm -hmm. there, There is just a consistent, just shittiness and unprofessionalism to this whole getup that it really works for me <laughs> yeah I, I it's always in this i guess not really an aesthetic but a sort of thing that i've always enjoyed where you have just a really shabby situation like in the original ghostbusters and possibly also in the new ghostbusters i don't know i didn't see it um but but speaking of shabby I really liked the uh, the sort of set decoration for the house that the Hodgsons live in. That's the family that's being haunted. It really gets at a sort of like a not poor, not like super poor, like a, like a Mike Lee movie poor and not like rich either, but just sort of like shabby sort of getting by where like it, it's it's not pretty. But it, it's workable, and like, especially, like, this little bit of set decoration that I loved was the array of posters that are on the wall of Janet's room of a bunch of, like, 70s British celebrities that look like that one Akewood strip where Ray <laughs> talks about how British celebrities look like school teachers, And it's very true. Yeah. I would not visit England for the colors. They, they don't look like rock stars. They look like American rock fans. 
Every everybody's favorite brand in Britain is just like visually they just look like a tribute band of an American band. Like uh, Oasis in 1997 were like the highest selling band in the world, but they looked like you could just catch them outside a record store. How about smoking, that? <laughs> smoking cigarettes they picked up off the ground. And they also sounded bad. I mean, the Beatles all looked like shoes, so... <laughs> <laughs> you got that right. I look, Oasis were not the best band, but I, I think they had like a, a at least a standard of musical quality. Today is gonna be the day that they're gonna throw it back to you. Okay, Liam was not Bye the best now. singer, but that was a, a stylistic choice that yeah, I, I'd say it worked out choice. more than it more than it didn't. It was a bad song. <laughs> Welcome to Britpop Talk, the only <laughs> podcast where two siblings talk about the life and career of Liam and Noel Gallagher. I know is Noel Gallagher. I he's like Amanda Palmer, where I knew him by reputation before I knew anything about his work. Had a reputation for saying really dumb and shitty things. And I, <laughs> eventually, I'm like, who the hell is this Noel Gallagher guy? And he's like, oh, he's the fucker that wrote Wonderwall. Like, and you think you have any right to tell other people they make bad music? <laughs> Fuck off. I, the reason I've got Oasis on the mind is because uh, this YouTuber, Kim Justice, just put out, like, an hour-long documentary on the uh, on uh, the release of Oasis's album Be Here Now, which is a 71-minute disaster that was also the fastest-selling record in British history. Like, it sold 600,000 copies over three days. Damn. And so I've just had, like, this sort of, uh, a bunch of, like, weird Britpop trivia in the back of my mind for the past few days. When I finally, you know, get my dream job, which is uh, being paid, you know, to be a hitman and kill Liam and Noel Gallagher, the last words I'm going <laughs> to say to them is, it's midnight at the Oasis. <laughs> I, I love that you keep pronouncing it like his nickname is Joyu Noel. Noel Gallagher. Well, it is now. But how the hell? Noel? I'm not going to say Noel. We're Americans. It's Noel. It's it's like our mom's middle name. Well, there's... The there's... first Liam. <laughs> Look, there's nothing more American than the grassy Noel. <laughs> is there anything more American than America? That's my impression of Bob Dylan. Thank you, everybody. Is there anything more American in America? Real question. impression of Bob Dylan. Real question, though. Who do you guys think killed Kennedy? <laughs> Which Kennedy? The the primary one. The president. Well, Bobby Kennedy was in a primary. Yeah, but he wasn't the president. Shut the hell up. <laughs> Answer me. Ugh. I, I think the uh, the sort of normie small brain answer is uh, the CIA, and then like you get up to increasing levels until you get to Galaxy Brain. Uh, uh, Castro, <laughs> Galaxy Brain Castro personally came over to America and shot Kennedy as revenge. It was like Gusano. <laughs> I think it was the Fishman from Shape of Water, and that's why Kennedy <laughs> is referenced in the opening monologue. I, I think it was the cigarette smoking man from the X Files, and nice. that story he wrote for the porno mag in that episode was completely true. <laughs> yeah, that was a good episode. Yeah, 
What, what season was that in? I, I, I It feels like uh, it was like one of the later ones, but not oops. so late that it's one of the only good episodes in the season. It was mid to later. It was definitely post, um, post-movie. My guess would be season seven or eight, but I'm going to look that up right now. Oh, wow. It's actually season four. Fuck, I was wrong. It's pre-movie. I, I was thinking like season five, right before they do the movie and things start going downhill. Yeah. Or like early season six, where you've got this string of like really good episodes that are just one-offs surrounded by a bunch of really garbage uh, story episodes. Like, there are some absolute bangers in the first half of season six. Like, that, there's the uh, there's the uh, Groundhog Day one where Mold keeps trying to stop a bank robbery. There's a... Uh, Oh, there's Triangle. That's the one where he ac- accidentally goes back in time on this uh, this ship that's uh, full of uh, World War II soldiers and like a. Yeah, I'm gonna be real with y'all. I watched for a while before I had a job when I was still in high school. There was one summer that I spent where literally the only thing I would do is like I would wake up and then I would watch like eight to ten episodes of the X Files. And then I would go to bed. And, like, that was the only thing that filled my day. So I'll, so much of the X-Files has blurred together that I, there's no distinction between seasons for me except for, like, pre- and post-movie and then when John Doggett comes in. Oh, like, uh, season season six, episode seven is the one with Bruce Campbell, which is... Don't remember it. Uh, he's, uh, he accident, he, he's a guy who accidentally fathers a demon. <laughs> And that's not even, like, the best episode in that part of the season, in, in like, that part of the season. Like, it's it's bookended. Like, the one right before it is How the Ghosts Stole Christmas, where Mulder and Scully accidentally walk into uh, this house with, like, two ghosts that are celebrating Christmas together. And, like, right after that, that, and right after that is the one with uh, Victoria Jackson and the, the weatherman who... Uh, subconsciously has the power to control the weather both of which are at least as good as the bruce campbell one if not better don't know what the hell you're talking about but okay oh and this is also the season with the no stop stop we don't need to do this (laughs) we don't need to recap every single episode of season (laughs) six of the x-files that is not necessary but it's the one with the alien playing baseball that one sucks i hated that one (laughs) oh my god that's the one where like the way that you knew an X Files episode was going to be important was that the part in the thing where it said uh, it said uh, trust no one wasn't there and it said something else instead. This one had no relevance to fucking anything else. It was just about a fucking baseball alien, and that in the, the trust no one was the place with in the big inning. <laughs> but but it was important. It was about the American national pastime. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Baseball is just as dumb and pointless as the rest of American culture. (laughs) (laughs) Fair point. But uh, let's get back to talking about a piece of British culture. Please, thank God. Have we said everything we want to say about the Enfield haunting? Well, there's there's the ending. Yeah, oh, yes, really yes. The, the thing we were all just yelling about in the group chat at, <laughs> one by one as we watched it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Andrew, as our guest, would you like to take the honor of describing this weird ending? Well, okay, so as you may have guessed from the way we talked about it, this is not a movie that had, like, a lot of, you know, uh, there wasn't a lot of pop music inserted into it. It's not like it had a soundtrack full of bangers or anything. 
there were no songs. I saw some 70s English rock stars on posters, ostensibly, as we mentioned. Suddenly, as this thing ends, and the, the young girl who has been possessed for the entire movie and then has, you know, climactically acted as a vessel for Spall's daughter to forgive him and let him be at peace, she looks out a window and suddenly from nowhere... Young Americans by David Bowie kicks in. <laughs> that the, and it, it's not that it's not that that kicks in. It's that like that shot of her looking into the camera is the capstone to like the Scrubs episode ending montage where Young Americans is playing and mm-hmm. everyone is you know culminating their storylines. This is you know everyone's happy after the thing and it all caps off with her looking into the camera as Young Americans is yeah, playing. Yeah, she looks at the camera and smiles in a way no one has done before. Like this yes. is like. The fourth wall has been intact this entire film, and suddenly she looks right at us and grins knowingly. Here's what, here's what the final shot of of it looks like. Um, imagine the cover for the album Young Americans, but <laughs> with longer hair and with no cigarette. <laughs> and yeah. I thought I thought she was gonna like raise a cigarette to her lips or something, and they were gonna do some fucking joke. Or like it's just like Young Americans, because otherwise there's no reason for it. Yeah, I, I could not parse why not... this song was like why they paid surely a lot of money for this song. Like I guess I guess the album must have come out like exactly when this takes place. No, it's too late. Is the thing <laughs> like I think this takes place. I think did this take place in like seventy seven? Did we say uh, seventy seven to seventy nine is what Young Wikipedia Americans was says. before that, right? Yeah, I mean, that's like that's like three years late. Goddamn. Yeah, let me see here. Yeah, I mean, he I believe he he was doing like two albums a year at the time because he was he was on that cocaine productivity streak. Sure. Uh, seventy five was when Young Americans came out. So yeah, it wasn't. I I can't parse what they were going for there. There weren't any Americans in the story. Yeah, I was <laughs> I was doubly baffled. First by the ending itself, and second by the fact that it's not even the first piece of media I've seen that has a completely baffling ending where they start playing young Americans. Uh, the first being Dogville, the, the Lars von Trier film, <laughs> where like you know after. I, I don't I don't know if I want to spoil Dogville because it's it's a really good movie even if Lars von Trier is a gigantic piece of shit oh. and you should probably watch it if you have three hours to spare but it ends with a a montage of uh you know early twentieth century America and the song Young Americans playing with that doesn't have much of a connection to what had happened in the previous three hours of the movie and it's just as baffling here and. Like, it was like a double whammy. I was just confused by why it was ending that way, and doubly confused as to why it was ending in a way I had already seen something end. (laughs) It is, it was bizarre. It was weird because it it didn't kick in at first, because, you know, I was sort of cruising through the end, because I'm like, well, the conflict got resolved in a weird kind of anticlimactic way, and now everybody is just wrapping this whole thing up, time for this to be over. And then it kicks in, and I was like, oh, no, this song. And then uh, I'm like, it, it took a few seconds for me to realize this doesn't make sense. Like, this is so out of place. Yeah, I thought something had gone wrong. Like, some kind of app had launched and was playing Young Americans <laughs> for no reason. 
I well, this was directed by Christopher Nyholm, who directed the Danish version of The Killing. So maybe people from Denmark just fucking love young Americans for some reason. <laughs> Louis, oh I, I think this that. is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Is, is bum, that bum, the official bum, bum, Bowie bum. album of Denmark? I we we've got to ship some other Bowie albums to Denmark. You've got to end your movies with other songs. If she had looked at the camera and like sense of doubt had started playing, it would have made much more sense. <laughs> she she looks at the camera. Fame makes a man think things over. <laughs> she looks at the camera and covers across the universe. <laughs> <laughs> 1984 off of fucking, um, is that Diamond Dogs? Yeah, it was Diamond Dogs. Yeah, she looks at the camera and just howls like a wolf. <laughs> Keep cool, Diamond Dogs. She just looks at the camera, you remind me of the babe, what babe? The babe, the power, what power? The power of voodoo, hoodoo, you do what? Remind me of the babe. It just goes into the Dancing in the Streets music video. <laughs> So before we get into the the end of this episode, I'd just like to give you a little bit of trivia. Uh, these three episodes were the highest rated, rated programs on the network they aired on in the UK, Sky Living. Would you like to guess what they dethroned for that throne? Oh, ooh, hmm. Let me think. What shows do British people like? Uh, they probably beat out, um... What's all this, then? In, Inspector Crobley's Crumpet Mysteries, um... A uh, cup, uh, two blokes and a lad being racist about cars. Um, <laughs> hmm, what else do British people like to watch? Uh, I'll give you a hint. This was an American program. Oh, really? Shit. Mm, Big Bang Theory. <laughs> Andrew, your guess? Um. I have no idea. Actually, wait, I'm going to take that back. Uh, the Super Bowl. <laughs> no, no, no. Previously, the highest rated episode of a Sky Living program was the sixth episode of the first series of The Blacklist. What? <laughs> yeah, what? the show what with James Spader. Yeah, the Spader. It, 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 <laughs> That's James the most... Spader is Donovan Blacklist or whatever, and he's got a secret <laughs> list of bad guys for the FBI. I know he's it's got a, a hat. It's a it's a biopic about George Orwell, which is why they like it so much. I like to throw in a joke for the tankies every episode. With that out of the, go ahead. No, I was just quoting Young Americans. But now that that's done, let's get to our small ratings. As you know, we do one for the film itself, which we're taking this miniseries as a film since, you know, it's less, uh, it's shorter than most Marvel movies. (laughs) (laughs) So we do one for the film itself, for Spall's performance, and Spall fashion, the fashion that Spall wears. Andrew, as our guest, would you like to take the first try? Oh, sure. Um... For the movie itself, I don't know. Uh, is this out of five or four? Out of five spalls. Out of five. Out of five spalls. I feel like a two and a half. In that I, I don't think it did anything particularly poorly, but I'm gonna, I'm going to have completely forgotten it in like another twelve hours here. It was just, you know, spalls great in it, which I guess leads me to the second criterion, which I would give, you know, five spalls because he's amazing and he makes the best out of 
a lot of fairly dull dialogue. Like that scene where he describes meeting his wife to the little girl and tells it to her like a bedtime story. Which yeah. Should have been a bunch of boring nonsense, but he's great. So it was very <laughs> charming. Uh, and the fashion, I don't know, maybe a four in that I appreciated how uh, uh, very 70s it was, but also it was a story full of stuffy people. So it wasn't particularly interesting fashion. All right. Which is more a matter of the fashion being accurate to the time and the people rather than on the movie. So I don't know. It was fun. Yeah. Eric, you're. For the movie itself, I would say. See, here's the thing it's better than three stars, than three spalls, I mean. Because there have been a lot of other movies I've given three spalls to that I did not enjoy as much. But it doesn't stand out well enough to be a four-spall movie. Um, and I believe that people who use half-spalls are heretics. Um, <laughs> so that's Fair not enough. a tool in my arsenal. I also realized, um, as I said it, how horrifying it was to give something a half-spall. Imagine half that's of it. That's disturbing. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. <laughs> what have I done? Sweet Jesus, what have I done? Become a thief in the night, become a dog on the run. Uh, now I'm just imagining Timothy Spall as Dewey Cox's dad in Walk Hard and getting cut in half by his own machete. <laughs> have I fallen so far? And is the hour so late that nothing remains but the cry of my hate? I'm not going to quote it anymore. Y'all get the picture anyway. And so... then there's uh, that bit at the end of Beautiful Ride where it's giving all these little shots. And there's a shot of Dewey and his dad just playing. Like his dad's got a ukulele after he's cut in half. And I'm imagining Timothy Spall playing that ukulele. And it's just, it's great. Like imagining Timothy Spall doing anything is pretty great. Yeah. I love this Spall, man. And um... imagining things about Walk Hard is pretty great because that's like one of the best comedies of the 2000s. You know what else is pretty great? Letting me finish this rating. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, I would say I would give the movie three spalls when I get right down to it. It, you know, it's it's on on the heavy side of three spalls. It's a pretty good one, um, but all in all, it's pretty forgettable, and I probably wouldn't recommend it to anybody. So you're Tim- you're playing Anthony Fantano and giving it a strong three. Uh, sure. You know. Um, I don't really watch Yakuza movies, so I don't know who that is. But um, I would say Timothy Spall is an actor. Five Spalls. He did a great performance in this, mm-hmm. as he, he almost always does. And then Spall fashion, he just kind of wore some boring suits. He wasn't as you know well-dressed as the other people. And also I think that facial hair didn't suit him that much. So yeah. pains me to say it, but two Spalls on the fashion. All right. Um, I I kind of agree with your assessment of the film itself, Eric. It is uh, a bit more forgettable than other forceful that than uh, other forceful movies we've seen. And I have to agree with you, Andrew, that it is it, it's very derivative. It takes a lot of sort of elements from other things that have done them more memorably. But I do think that this has a very good story at its heart. The sort of relationship between uh, Maurice and Janet, and I think that carries it enough for me. To give it four spalls. Uh, and for Spall's performance itself, I I agree with both of you. He is very good in this. I would not say he is uh, buoying the whole thing like he did as Bob Rukovich in uh, Upside Down. <laughs> so since he is not literally saving the movie from the grave, I'm going to give him a four. And for Spall fashion, uh, yeah, he's just sort of a kind of a shabby 
British dude in a conservative suit with not particularly flattering facial hair or hair. So, yeah, I'm, I'm giving it a two. Let's move on to our recommendations. Andrew, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, I have had a pretty exciting month in terms of... It's a lot of noise. All right. I'm not sure what that was. Okay. Uh, I've had a pretty great month for uh, consuming media. Um, I just saw a movie I was really excited about uh, called November. Um, oh, uh, the remember? sequel to the sequel to Earth, Wind, and Fire September. September. Yeah, exactly. No. Uh, <laughs> it oh, was the just... the sequel to China Mieville's October. Absolutely. <laughs> it was uh, just recently imported uh, from Estonia. Huh? Um, it is available digitally to rent or own um, from Oscilloscope Labs, uh, which is a niche label who does a lot of like imported slash independent stuff. I was lucky enough to see it in a theater um, because I live just a few blocks away from an amazing out house. Out art house, house? <laughs> an amazing art house theater. I like theater. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you don't have to go to an outhouse theater. Yes. An amazing art house theater called The Loft here in Tucson um, that gets all kinds of stuff. And it didn't play very, in very many theaters, um, but this was just last weekend. Um, it's sort of a it's, – it's got this amazing, really stark black and white cinematography. And it's basically uh, if you put some Cocteau and some Bergman in the matter transporter from The Fly <laughs> uh, along with Twin Peaks Part 8 – Oh, this would sort of be what came out the other side, I think. Nice. Uh, it's this sort of uh, fairy tale, fable, horror, creepy, abstract drama. It's great. I don't know how to describe it. I'm um, glad but... it's not mixed with Leonard Part Eight. <laughs> no, no, wait, it's Leonard very, Part Six. Very different. <laughs> um, so yeah, you should um, rent that if that kind of sounds like your jam. Uh, and. An album I'm really into right now is uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, Zola Jesus put out uh, Okovi Editions, which is a collection of B-sides and remixes from the album she put out last year called Okovi. If you're uh, not familiar with Zola Jesus, she's sort of like if Bjork was from Wisconsin. Oh. Um, I'm a big fan, have been for a while, and her new stuff is the best she's ever been. Um, so that just dropped this month, and I highly recommend checking it out. It's just a, it's four B-sides and four remixes, but they're all fantastic. Um, so yeah, she's another she's another artist who I sort of became aware of, again, via David Lynch to make that connection again, because she did a cover a while back of the Lady in the Radiator song from Eraserhead. Oh. And someone recommended that to me. I was like, oh, this is great. And then I ended up buying all her albums. Uh, so, yeah, check out Zola Jesus if you like that kind of stuff. All right. Eric? So, um, first of all, I decided to keep in the horror vein for my first two wrecks. Uh, Dance Macabre, Stephen King's book on the horror genre, is my favorite of his works. I'm a huge fan. If that's the sort of thing you're interested in, if you want to peek behind the curtain and see what he thinks about horror, then that'll be that'll be fun. If you want to watch a movie that'll spook you, um, Annabelle is pretty frightening. Uh, uh, gives me some good spooks every time I see it. And my last recommendation is, you know, based on the very strange song at the ending of this movie, um, in my modern Russia class, Russia from 1917 to the present day, we... In class, talked a little bit about Soviet culture of like the Khrushchev and Brezhnev era. 
Mm-hmm. And our professor showed us the – he was like, you guys will find this corny, but I really liked it. Uh, and it's the end – the last scene – it's a song called I Walk the Streets of Moscow. And it's the last scene in a movie called Walking the Streets of Moscow from 1961. Um, I have only seen the last scene of this movie, but it's a good final scene. And it's a catchy <laughs> song that has been stuck in my head for three days, which is uh, frustrating because I do not speak Russian – so none of the words stay in my head. But uh, check that out. Give that a listen. It's All well right. shot, and it's a good song. All right. And is that a recommendation for the song or the movie? It's a recommendation for the final scene of that movie. Just check it out on YouTube. Okay. <laughs> uh, so my first recommendation is going to be for a film I have mentioned in this uh, episode. That would be The Bye Bye Man. And I'm not sure if I'm recommending it sincerely or ironically, because I think uh, you can get a lot out of it either way. It plays a lot with themes that this movie goes into, the sort of like, uh, it's more about like illusions and not knowing if what you're seeing is true than uh, the more bodily sort of fear. But everyone dogged on this movie when it came out last year, but I actually kind of liked it. I'm not saying it's fantastic. I'm not even saying it's particularly good. I'm saying it's interesting, and I found it a fun time. And uh, unlike Andrew, this has not been a good uh, past uh, few months for me in terms of media uh, exposure, because I have been doing a play. Eric said it was The Merchant of Venice on the last episode. He was wrong about that. that. Wrong. I did that last year. He said I was Shylock. That was wrong. That was last year. I'm Claudius and the Ghost in Hamlet. And he okay. said that Shylock was the titular role in Merchant of Venice. He is not. That's Antonio. Listen, shut up. First of all, <laughs> I feel like you only needed to say I was wrong in two of those. Because you were Shylock in Merchant of Venice. Last year. Exactly. So you could have said, he said I was in Merchant of Venice, which is wrong because that was last year. You didn't have to say Shylock is not in whatever fucking play it is this year. Like, But I needed I was... to bridge to the Shylock as titular character in Merchant of Venice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's been taking up a whole lot of my time. It's why I wasn't on the last episode. And basically the only thing I've been doing aside from that is either doing schoolwork or playing Yakuza. I recently finished Yakuza 0 and I recently started Yakuza 6. I could recommend Yakuza 6, but I'm not because I'm very conflicted on whether or not I like it. Uh, that's a whole different uh, pile of noodles based on how much I love Yakuza 5 and how much Yakuza 6 changes from Yakuza 5. So I will recommend Yakuza 0, which is how a lot of people have gotten into the series recently. It's available for PlayStation 4. It's a very good game. Uh, you get to run a real estate company. Like, nice. that's, that's literally a subplot you can do. It's a very involved one. Like, you buy buildings, <laughs> you build them up, and you try to take over districts of the city that are owned by a rival gang of evil, <laughs> of evil real estate moguls. <sighs> and if you've played any of the Yakuza's, Yakuza games I've recommended before on this show, Yakuza 4 or 5, you'll enjoy Yakuza 0. If you like just a fun sort of hot-blooded adventure story you'll like yakuza zero if you haven't played any of the yakuza games he has recommended good i support that <laughs> uh, eric is uh eric is trying to make this an anti-gamer podcast 
and I am maintaining our stance of ambivalence on the issue of games. <laughs> See, this is the sort of intellectual debate that they don't have on liberal things like the, you know, the Atlantic or the New York Times op- op- opinion page. Uh, when... They need to have more intellectual diversity, pro-gamer and anti-gamer. You already <laughs> have plenty of country uh, columnists. Why not hire a Western one? <laughs> <laughs> And so that's our recommendations. Let's get to our plugs. Andrew, where can people find you on the online? Uh, you can find me at Twitter, pretty reliably, at Andrew Isla, A-N-D-R-E-W-I-H-L-A. Um, like I said, the big thing I want to plug right now is uh, this coming Friday the 27th, as we're recording this a week from today, uh, which I'm sure will be out of date by the time this goes up, uh, is uh, my new little video series uh called obsidian national forest it's about uh some idiot owls who live in a forest where spooky uh weird shit has happened in the past but they're they're completely uh unaware of it um so that's that's what i've been up to lately uh, it's got its own twitter account at obsidian nf uh yeah i'll be on there talking about movies both i'm watching and making that sentence didn't make sense i apologize i'm very <laughs> tired uh, and eric where can we find you you can find me upon the online by going to Twitter and looking for Eric is a joke. You can also listen to my radio show, Funkhouse Berlin, consistently the highest rated play talk program in the history of the spoken word. Oh, goodness. Forgive me. Um, if this goes up before our show tomorrow night, then you can tune in live. Uh, this week's episode is towards a socialist tech industry, if such a thing is possible. Um, and... If you miss it, then you can check out our old episodes, which are sporadically being uploaded at soundcloud.com slash radio, where you can find this podcast and all the other BSR podcasts, including uh, our series BSR In Case You Missed It, which showcases uh, BSR radio shows that we you know pull from the archives and put it on SoundCloud for your listening pleasure. You can listen to us. You can listen to the first episode of Kent Public Access Radio, uh, you can listen to The Days, and you can also listen to uh, a friend of the show, Jacob Dickey's Jacob and David's Bracketiatry Bracketacular. I'd like to particularly recommend an episode of Funkhouse Berlin I listened to today, which is from, I believe, three weeks ago and just got uploaded to the SoundCloud today, uh, where they talk about UHF and uh, mm-hmm. the opening thing has Eric uh, be calling in as a uh, secret informant from the White House. I will not reveal that that uh, informant's identity. It's a very funny punchline. Mm-hmm. And you can find me at F-U-C-K-I-N-A-L-P-A-M-A-R-E. That's where I'll be tweeting. I'll probably be putting up a bunch of uh, Yakuza screenshots later tonight after I finish editing this episode and start playing Yakuza. And uh, I shitpost a lot about bullshit. And you can find in my pinned tweet a link to my short story collection, Mark My Words, I Might Be Something Someday. That's all our plugs. It's the podcast life. You know what we're up to, hosting and posting. (laughs) Next time, we'll be talking about the King's Speech. But for now, Spall's life. That's Spall, folks. The King's Peach. (laughs) (laughs) I prefer the sequel, the King's Eggplant Emoji. Alright, that was a fun one. Yeah. That was a good episode. We had some good riffs all around. We're all, all, all killing it. Even though we barely talked about the film itself. I'm relieved because I said I had very little to say. Same. Uh, 
if if I if I could have read my notes, I probably would have had more to say, but damn my handwriting. <laughs> oh man, I wrote down one of my favorite lines. I'm getting a bit long in the tooth for grandmother's footsteps, which I do not understand oh, at yeah, all. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Because yeah, I had the same reaction. Like... I stopped and looked up at the screen like, what? Long in the tooth is the weirdest euphemism. It's a British euphemism that means old. Yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. That wasn't the part that was confusing me. I know it. Mm, Fucking Jesus, sorry. Grandmother's footsteps was the one that really threw me for a loop. Oh, that means death. Oh. Getting ready to die. (laughs) (laughs) Grandma's footsteps would go straight to hell. (laughs) It's like highway to hell, but it's less intense. I also particularly liked uh, this bit where uh, uh, Spall and his wife are talking together, and Spall he's got and wife. and he's got this uh, bit of ashes, and she's like, "This is not a museum of the dead," and he's like, "Isn't it?" <laughs> yeah, that was good. Yeah. Anytime where he had like a a, a blunt retort to somebody, yeah. I can try. <laughs> it's a good day for a blunt retort, and am I right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. And I especially love when that comes back and she's, like, smashed the, the urn with the ashes in it. She's like, if I said it was a poltergeist, would you pay attention to me? Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was the moment where I was like, why aren't we spending more time with this? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's like two hours and 15 minutes. You'd think they'd find more time for that subplot. It's like six hours, I think we established. <laughs> it is exactly as long as Satantango. Jesus. <laughs> Uh, oh man, we didn't even get into the comparisons with uh, American Horror Story. Sure, we didn't. She's well, an American Godzilla. I... I'm an American Horror Story. I, this can this can be sort of the the stinger. Let's Young talk American about how horror... bad American Horror Story is. It's Young yes. American Horror Funny. Story. I hardly know her. Um, here's why I quit watching American Horror Story. I watched the first two seasons. Uh, and then the third season, Coven. Uh, so they have this, there's this racist witch who's like, you know, 300 years old, who's been buried since then or whatever. And they dig her out and she's still racist, whatever. She gets her head cut off. I, I forget when that happens, but she's just this disembodied 300 year old racist head. And there's a black girl in the coven and she's like, listen, you old racist head, I'm going to make you not racist anymore. So she sits her on a table and props her eyes open. Or not, doesn't prop her eyes open. She sits her on the table and forces her to watch Roots. <laughs> and Which I thought was pretty fucking funny. That's amazing. And then later on, they um, run like a, uh, a, <laughs> a um, raid on the on the uh, on the coven like a rival coven does and so there's just fighting people are getting slaughtered people are getting the shit beat out from people getting thrown around stuff's getting broken and the camera slowly pans up to the second floor of the house where the you know the head is sitting on the table hearing this and watching roots and just like a single tear rolls down <laughs> her cheek and i think i think i said out loud this is the dumbest thing I've seen in my life. And oh, I quit man. watching. If Murder House had been anywhere near that trashy, I actually might have liked it. But <laughs> it's Murder, Murder House, House. <laughs> But but Murder House suffers from like a sort of much like uh Enfield Haunting, it suffers from this sort of crisis of tone 
but in a different way. None of the actors in Murder House know how shitty the show they're in is, except yeah. for Zachary Quinto, who is just putting in his all and being snappy and the most entertaining thing on screen. But, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I know I've told this story on the podcast, but I don't know if you've heard it, Andrew. Uh, one moment in American Horror Story Murder House, which I had to watch because I subjected my mom to Satan Tango because uh, I was staying over for summer. And, yeah. like, because, because you're atrocious. I would but, just come in and I would see Neil and my mother watching Satan Tango and my mom was yelling at it. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. I like how you each individually refer to her as my mother instead of our mother. That says a lot about your relationship. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, she was like, okay, I, you, you could watch this in the living room with the only DVD player and TV. If we make a deal, if I have to watch this, you have to watch American Horror Story Murder House. And I'm like, okay. And then like four episodes into Murder House, there's a scene with these two people talking and the camera is cutting so quickly it's just it's just getting me so mad and eventually i'm like okay okay run this back i've i've got to get out a stopwatch and a piece of paper i'm gonna count how many fucking cuts are in this scene <laughs> and it was 44 cuts in 88 seconds that's my wow. favorite song uh, <laughs> <laughs> riff of the week again eric killing it Gang, gang. But yeah, uh, as I said in the group chat, I think I might be overrating the look of this uh, miniseries because I'm mentally comparing it to American Horror Story Murder House, which is some of the worst filmmaking I've ever seen in my fucking life. Mm -hmm. I have never actually watched any American Horror Story. I've been vaguely curious enough to try it sometimes and never actually gotten around to it. But I will say, I think it's appropriate we brought everything back around to American Horror Story because today, on 420, Jessica Lange turned 69. Nice. I saw that. I saw that. That's very nice. Yeah. Ah. It's the nicest birthday of all. <laughs> ah. Really took one for the team. Thank you, Jessica Lang. Ah. Well, she that... did this for us. Most people go go straight to Ela, but it is Isla. Okay. It's, it's pronounced yes. Eric, and it's kind of weird that you don't know this by now. Because <laughs> I was I was pretty confident that it was the I that was silent, that it was the H that was silent. I, I silent the silent I would be wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fla, fla. I, I completely messed up the joke I'd been formulating. It, it's it's kind of a guttural. <laughs> Oh, no, it's know. Isla. Yeah, huh. it's a it's a it's a Klingon name. There you go. Old podcast is guttural because we are some slimy boys. <laughs> this podcast is gutta guttural because we're joining Young Money. <laughs> Grocery bag. <laughs> <laughs>